Acts chapter 12. As we study the advance of the kingdom, we've really wrapped up two sections of the book of Acts, and we're approaching the third. The first section had to do with the gospel in Jerusalem, the events of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit, the fresh realization of God building his church right there in Jerusalem. But it wasn't long before that gospel was literally overflowing Jerusalem and spreading into the surrounding regions of Samaria and Judea. This, just as Jesus said it would, when he told his disciples they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. In the following chapters, we'll study that gospel advance to the rest of the world. But here, at the transition between chapters 12 and 13, it seems Luke wants to highlight this theme of the book of Acts, that being the advance of the kingdom. So our theme this morning is not very unique It captures what has happened so far, and it captures what will happen in the second half of Luke's account. Our theme is this, the kingdom of God will continue to advance. Again, remember, Jesus said it would. He said he would build his church. He told his disciples before he ascended in Acts 1, you're going to go and be my witnesses. This is how it works. So we should not be surprised that when we come to chapter 12, we see the advance of the kingdom. Even though it looks like the kingdom kind of suffered a step back in the death of James at the hand of Herod, we're quickly reminded Herod is not in charge. And Peter is miraculously delivered from the prison of Herod to continue gospel ministry. We're seeing the kingdom's advance. So what does our text that was read for you earlier, this one short paragraph about the death of Herod, what does it teach us about the certain advance of the kingdom? The theme, very familiar. Perhaps the events of Herod's death are somewhat unfamiliar to you. But I want you to see in this paragraph that Luke is just taking a moment with a little bit of historical data To remind us, it's working. The kingdom is advancing. So that when you face opposition, or when the church as a whole faces opposition, you'll recognize that there are going to be some ebbs and flows to the spiritual warfare of advancing the kingdom. But know this, the gates of hell cannot withstand this constant advance this continual attack of the gospel. What does our text show us about this advance? Number one, we learn from this paragraph of Herod's death that the kingdom of God will continue to advance despite the enemies of God. And there are many. The kingdom of God will continue to advance despite the enemies of God. As we read of Herod's dealings with his subjects, we hear of him putting on royal robes, 
sitting on a throne. They're likely in the amphitheater at Caesarea, and he's waxing eloquent. And the people, probably out of prepared readiness, are proclaiming him to be a god. Few think that this is a natural response, that they are just overwhelmed by the glory of Herod. Most of them probably hate the guy. He was already in conflict with them. He's mad at them. They're mad at him. But they've hammered out a negotiation, and it includes Herod's day in the sun, so to speak. And the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod, of course, takes this to heart. This is already what he thought of himself. He thought he was really something after all. He could put an end to the church if he so chose. He could put an end to this fledgling uprising called the way, these followers of Jesus. Herod thought he was in charge. Herod may or may not have viewed himself as an enemy of God. We do know he wanted to make himself a friend of the Jews, and so partially Jew himself, he practiced all of the Jewish customs and kept all of the Jewish holidays. What he didn't know was that he had placed himself as a roadblock in front of the gospel. It, it would be like a, an ant standing on the train tracks, resolving to stop the oncoming locomotive. Herod set himself in opposition to the advance of the kingdom. And really all of chapter 12 paints the picture of a big ego, corrupted by sin, exercised without restraint. And yet when we come to the end of the chapter, we realize that like every other rebel against the kingdom of God, Herod will prove to be no match. He completely misunderstood the gospel's power to arrest and save sinners, to sweep through cities or regions or nations, bringing about a harvest of righteousness. Herod was probably ignorant of Jesus' promise that was uttered to his disciples. I will build my church. And so Herod thought nothing of standing in its way, opposing this spread of the gospel, seeking to put an end to its messengers. The gospel has always had and will always have enemies. Big, powerful enemies. Big, powerful enemies that can bring about a good bit of earthly harm and destruction. Reading Fox's Book of Martyrs is no pleasant experience. You can see what big egos, corrupted by evil, can, can imagine against their enemies. From ancient Old Testament armies assaulting God's people to modern enemies and bullies and religious systems such as Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam, the church has always had its enemies. You may find your co-workers' unbelief a bit intimidating. Your neighbor's questions may leave you unsettled a little bit. 
Going to the family reunions could be a challenge because you know some of the skepticism you'll face about religion or Christianity. At times, you're likely infuriated by the rhetoric of our culture with all of its anti-God, anti-truth, anti-morality arguments perpetuated by our news media. We understand something of facing intimidating enemies, even in a land of religious freedom. Expand the Christian perspective to the rest of the nations of the world, and we understand physical assault on churches and Christians. But in the face of intimidating enemies, when we face the Herods, of the world. We must remember the lesson of 2 Kings chapter 6. There, Elisha's servant is in despair because he steps out of the house to realize that on every mountain surrounding the valley is an Assyrian soldier. They are surrounded by the Syrian army. And Elisha steps out and joins his servant in that view and then prays that God would open the eyes of his servant. And God answers that prayer, and the servant sees surrounding the Syrian army a greater army, a flaming angelic army. That's the Old Testament illustration of what Jesus said in John 16, when he says, In me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In your Christian advance of the kingdom, you will face tribulation. You'll be surrounded by opposition, but be of good cheer. Jesus is building his church, and he surrounded that opposition with his army. He cannot lose. The Herods come and go, but as we've sung for a long time, his truth is marching on. The kingdom of God is advancing despite the enemies of God. Second, we see that the kingdom of God will continue to advance through the word of God. As we go into battle, as we think of ourselves as these witnesses carrying the message out, remember, we go carrying the word of the Lord. So Luke is careful to articulate several times in the book of Acts that it was not just the church that was added to or multiplied, but as he says here in verse 24, it was the word of God that increased and multiplied. By that, he does not mean they were adding more chapters to the word, but that it was multiplying in the hearts of more and more disciples. The word was ushering in the kingdom of God. It's the word of God that continues, even when all earthly kings and kingdoms fall. Once again, our study is helped by understanding this English conjunction, the little word, but, that begins verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
you're learning, it's a word of contrast. So there's something before and something after. And they're, they're set apart by this word but. Not this anymore, but that. A clear distinction. So what is the distinction here? We have the word of contrast and what follows. The word of God increased. So what comes before that we're supposed to step back and see the contrast? It's there in verse 23. It's really verses 20 through 23. It's Herod angry. Herod pontificating. Herod receiving the glory as if he were a god. And then verse 23, it's Herod being struck down. Herod being eaten by worms. Herod breathing his last. Herod falls, but the word of God continues to rise. Herod diminishes. He's eaten by worms, but the word of God grows and increases. Herod is defeated, but the kingdom is advancing. It seems as though it's just a paragraph of historical narrative. Gives us a little, like, shot in the arm, like, in our faith. Like, I believe this is true, but history actually verifies this very account of Herod. But it's more than just historical data. It's Herod meeting his end while the word of God continues knowing no end. Because the word of the Lord lives and abides forever, the Psalms tell us. Herod dies, but the word lives. In the first 19 verses of this chapter, Herod is trying to limit the spread of the word. And yet we come to the end of this chapter and all of his efforts are summed up as failure. Because the word of God is growing, increasing, multiplying. Herod failed. You could say, but wait a minute. What about the death of James? Yes, we would agree. Herod killed James in the will of God. But the truth that James loved continued to spread. You see, James wasn't about James. James was about the spread of the gospel. So like Paul, who would say later, whether it be in life or death, may Christ be magnified. So that was James' desire. So Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, is is not a point for Herod. It's still the success of the gospel. Even in James' death, the gospel is advancing here in Acts chapter 12. Is it any wonder Martin Luther would write, the body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. His kingdom's forever. They can kill as many Christians as they want, but the kingdom of God is advancing despite the enemy of God and through the word of God. If you as a Christian live your life for the sake of the gospel in the name of Christ, you have found your life even when it's taken from you. Christ is being exalted in you, in your living and in your dying. The kingdom of God advances by the word of God. If this week you are going to genuinely pray, your kingdom come, 
then that must be accompanied by the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. The kingdom does not come and and produce fruit in your life apart from the word of God, apart from the gospel that saves you and that same gospel that secures you in your pursuit of holiness. So live the word. Live by its truth. Live that truth before the eyes of unbelievers this week. And not only live the word, but speak the word. Talk this truth in your homes. Talk this truth into that marital conflict. Talk the truth into the parenting of your toddler. Let the word of God advance the kingdom. And unless you think you can fix your spouse, and if you still think that, talk to some of the older married folks around here. And unless you think you can save your children on your own, then you had better find out how the kingdom advances. It's through the word of God. So lean into that word this week. Utilize it in every area of the Christian life. With Paul, believe and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I know it works. It's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Know from this short paragraph that the kingdom of God will continue to advance. And it will be through the word of God, which lives, which has been commissioned. It has been sent out, Isaiah said. And in its sending out, there was no question as to what it would accomplish. Isaiah gives us the word of the Lord there that he sends out his word and says, it will not return empty. It will accomplish everything it was sent to do. This is the confidence we have. This is what Luke was standing on when he gives us this little paragraph to show us the kingdom will advance. Believe it. Don't believe the the flood of information that you hear from the news media. Is it that bad? The answer is kind of yes and no. Yes, that probably really is true what's going on everywhere, and this is a mess. Our world is a mess. But is it that bad that I despair? No. Why? Because God is on the throne. His kingdom is advancing. Believe this. Rest in it, as Luke argues this point. Verse 25 is a transitional verse from what we've studied so far and what we will study in the rest of Acts. It wraps up something we know that's unfinished in our study of Acts so far and introduces us to some new information that will unfold in the following chapters. It's just a couple of names. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Luke ties up a loose end. Some information about an offering that was taken up. You remember that from a few chapters back. The famine was coming. It had begun. So they took up an offering and sent it with Paul and Barnabas to the church at Jerusalem. Luke's wrapping that part of the story up for us. But he's introducing us to something new. They brought with them John, whose other name was Mark. 
John or John Mark is going to factor into the missionary journeys that unfold. You know of that conflict that comes over him. Well, that, that's yet to come. So these names are given to us to kind of show us something's happened before, something's still happening, the kingdom's still advancing. It's going to continue, and it's going to continue to advance, not only despite the enemies of God, not only through the word of God, but number three, in the people of God. Here we have three names. Admittedly, Acts has already numbered thousands and thousands of unnamed followers of Jesus. Here we happen to have three named disciples. But in these named disciples and in those thousands of unnamed that Acts 8 says were scattered everywhere spreading the good news. In all of those thousands, we learn this lesson that God is accomplishing his will. God is building his church. God is advancing his kingdom in the lives of his people. And so it could be said of us. We gathered for worship and then returned to our homes to embark on another week of advancing the kingdom through our vocations all around the metro. So where has God called you to serve, to make a living, to organize a home? You, you put a dot on the map for every one of us that leaves this place in both where we live, where we shop, and where we work, and we have dots all over this map, and then we add all the other Bible-believing churches and Christians all over the city, and we have a pretty extensive light to shine. The kingdom of God is advancing in the people of God. Real people, Barnabas, Saul, John, all of them flawed, and we'll see those flaws unfold in the very chapters to come. You and I, flawed, yes, but God is using us to advance his kingdom. This means you cannot be silent. You're a witness. It is criminal to take the stand and not answer the questions. The judge sends you to jail. You have to give a witness. You have to speak what is true. Now, am I saying that God... His will is thwarted, that his kingdom won't advance if we're disobedient witnesses, if we neglect our responsibility? Of course not. Listen to the wise Uncle Mordecai talking to Esther, saying, listen, you need to stand in the gap. You need to do this. What if God brought you to this place for such a time as this? That sounds great, but he already said, hey, listen, if you don't, God's going to do it some other way. But that, that'll be all your problem. You'll have to face God for that. Mordecai had no thought that his hope was in Esther. He was simply saying, what if God's will is Esther? We don't have any what ifs in our scenario. We are called to be witnesses. There is no what if. Simply believe that God's kingdom is advanced despite his enemies. Herod, Herod doesn't stop God's kingdom from advancing. 
The kingdom will continue to advance through the word of God. It multiplies. It's powerful. It saves. It transforms. And the kingdom advances in the people of God. Now I want us to step back in the text for our last observation about kingdom advance. Verse 22. This moment when Herod receives the praise of the people, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod is really, really angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you picture the little nation of Israel there along the Mediterranean Sea, Tyre and Sidon are up north. They're Phoenician cities, probably outside of Herod's rule. However, they were dependent on this whole area of Israel coming from the Middle East for a trade route. Tyre and Sidon are, are massive trade cities. Herod has cut them off from those trade routes. And now these cities are coming to Herod through his kind of assistant there, his helper, Blastus, and they're seeking to negotiate peace. And it seems to be part of the negotiation was that Herod would be able to kind of bluster on about how great he was. The historian Josephus echoes this very account of Acts 12, telling us that there at Caesarea, where Herod was, he came out in, in these robes that were woven with silver threads so that he glistened in the sun like an angel. Herod speaks and the people chant that Herod is like a god. And Luke writes, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Again, Josephus adds, that Herod collapsed there in the theater, which you can still see standing by the uh, Mediterranean Sea. He collapsed there, was carried to the palace, and died five days later. And you can do your own research on the worms eating him. All right, I won't elaborate on that in this brief hour before lunchtime. What does Herod's death have to do with the glory of God? Herod wanted glory for himself. He refuses to acknowledge the glory of God specifically in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel heralds Christ as the hope of sinners. Christ as the master to learn from. Christ as the Lord to kneel to. Jesus is exalted. That's why in Acts 4, we've already heard these disciples, there is no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved. You must come to this one, Jesus, Son of God, for salvation, for life transformation. Herod stood in opposition to all of that. Herod wanted to glisten as if he were glorious. He wanted the praise of people. He wanted to be heralded as the one who could lord over all others. You can read in Daniel chapter 4 of Nebuchadnezzar boasting in a similar way, saying, look at the kingdom I have built, the nations I've defeated, the empire I rule over. And compassionately compared to Acts 12, Nebuchadnezzar only grazed like a cow for seven years. 
before being restored. I want to read to you a portion of Ezekiel 28. We probably don't read much of Ezekiel, right? You don't find Ezekiel phrases crocheted on pillows on your couch or sayings on our walls. Some of it's because Ezekiel's challenging and pretty bold. But when we get into Ezekiel, we realize we we really do know what's going on. We really do understand, much like in Acts 12, that the kingdom of God is advancing and no enemies are going to stand in God's way. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we read of this glory-grabbing mindset of those who stand in the way of the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. There's a lot there that reminds us of Acts 12. A throne, the image of a king, wanting to be known as a God. Well, Ezekiel's condemnation continues down in verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations. In other words, you will be defeated. You will be overcome by enemies because of your craving to be God. Verse 9. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? In other words, there is this rebellion anchored in the heart and minds of these rebels that they would still think they are someone in need of no one else, even while being defeated, even while being eaten by worms. Seeking to be somebody. Seeking to be in control when they are absolutely out of control. They have no control over what from the inside is literally devouring them. Verse 17 of Ezekiel's prophecy Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I expose you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. All this is a prophecy against a city for its real wickedness and it would face real judgment. But its language of wanting to be like a god and being destroyed is the very language of Luke's writing in Acts chapter 12 of this man Herod a glory-grabbing, gospel-opposing rebel who made himself as if he were a god. And in his ruin is proven to be mere mortal. The kingdom of God is advancing. 
In Isaiah 48, hear God say, my glory I will not give to another. God is not panicked by the affairs of our world. God is not panicked by the persecution facing the church as if somehow the gospel is not going to advance in those really hard places. The kingdom of God is advancing ultimately toward one end. And it's not our joy around the throne of heaven. The kingdom of God is advancing ultimately to one end, and that's the glory of God. That's why he saves sinners. That's why he honors the righteous. That's why he judges the wicked. It's for his own name's sake. That phrase struck me, his own namesake. So I looked it up, and with a computer, you can do that pretty quickly and find all of the references of God doing stuff from the Old Testament, rescuing Israel out of Egypt raising up a big pharaoh who could oppress God's people only to squash that pharaoh in the plagues. Why? He said, for his own namesake, Israel was rescued and Egypt was crushed so that he would be seen as glorious in the eyes of those who treasure him and in the eyes of those who rebel against him. Luke wants us to know in in this ugly story of worms devouring Herod, that the enemies of God do not stand in the way of the kingdom. And God wants us to know, or or Luke wants us to know, by giving us the names of Barnabas and and Saul and John Mark, that in the lives of those who, who rest in and believe in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is advancing. Read to the end of the book, not just the book of Acts, but the end of the Bible, and see what, or rather, who is at the center of that heavenly experience. And suddenly we realize the glory of God is the great end of the story. There's a byproduct to that that we will willingly accept. And that's a new heaven and a new earth and joy for us in the presence of that God. But there will be no mistaking the glory of God because there won't even be a sun that brightens the days in that existence. For the Lamb will be the light. The glory of God will be the light. His glory he will not give to another. And so know the story of the advance of the kingdom. Jesus says the victory started at the cross when he made a spectacle of his enemies, triumphing over them, Colossians 2 says. And that victory march is continuing. Hebrews says you can see the wake of it. And in that wake are more and more being caught up in the kingdom. It's advancing. It's working. Any thought in your head that it's not is is faithlessness and maybe an absence of being any kind of witness. Maybe you need to join the parade. Maybe you need to put on the team-colored T-shirt and actually do something that looks like you're excited about the kingdom. But I feel like it's those who aren't real excited about it that are saying, well, this will never work. Come to the scriptures and read the stories. 
The book of Acts is given to us so that we would know how the Holy Spirit, through His church, is proving the gospel's power over unbelief. Jump in with two feet in that celebration this week. Eagerly anticipate the next opportunity to insert how good your God is to you into some conversation with someone who may have no idea what you're talking about. Look for that. Capitalize on on the slightest open door or window. Pour yourself into that crack and insert your faith into that person's expression of need or emptiness or desire or frustration or trouble, anxiety with what's going on in the world. That's your moment. Don't commiserate with them. Give the good news of the gospel. The kingdom of God will continue. Take heart, brothers and sisters. Stand boldly for truth. Witness clearly to the transformational work of Christ. Pray this week for those missions partners around the world. Cheer them on. Why? Because the kingdom of God will continue to advance despite the enemies of God through the word of God as it takes root in the people of God and all of this for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, bless your word to us as we surrender ourselves to its truth, its power, its hope, its joy. Guide our path by your word this week. And by that, we, we, we mean not only into righteous living, but into the fullness of the Christian life. Illuminate our path of being a witness Illuminate the next step of advancing the gospel. Illuminate that conversation with our child or with our spouse or with a coworker. Give us light, Lord, by the light of your word, so that we may be all that we should be to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.